Hi, everyone, and welcome to Remaking Tomorrow, a series of conversations about the future of teaching and learning. I'm Ryan Radzeski, here with Greg Baer. This is a podcast powered by Remake Learning, a network that ignites engaging, relevant, and equitable learning in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change. On today's episode, we're talking with Thomas C. Murray, Director of Innovation for Future Ready Schools. A project of the Alliance for Excellent Education, Future Ready Schools is a network providing research-based tools and resources that help teachers, principals, district leaders, librarians, and lots of others support personalized, student-centered learning in schools and districts. Launched in 2014, the network has expanded exponentially, reaching more than 20 million students and 2 million educators. Tom, welcome to Remaking Tomorrow. Ryan and Greg, thanks so much for having me. It's such an honor to be with you today. We love having you here. Thank you. Tom, as a network, Future Ready Schools is a busy one. It hosts community events and webinars. It publishes case studies and implementation guides. It provides a resource library that helps educators rethink schools across a series of gears, things like community partnerships, use of space and time, and a few others that we'll get to in a minute. But for now, let's just start with the basics. What is a Future Ready School? What makes a school future ready? And what are Future Ready Schools doing differently than their peers? Future Ready Schools is part of the Alliance for Excellent Education, which you referenced, and we're really an equity-focused organization to make sure that every child, every child has opportunities. And so first and foremost, when we look to describe Future Ready Schools, we also can leverage something called the Future Ready Framework. What we see all the time in education is districts hopping on the latest bandwagon, whether it's a particular device, whether it's a particular tool, and then two years later, it's something different, and now we've got a graveyard of tech tools sitting in some closet or whatever it may be. We wanted to help school districts really understand from the get-go, what are evidence-based practices and what do those overall look like? So to talk about it holistically, I would say, number one, future-ready schools are led by future-ready leaders. They're leaders with the mindset of collaborative leadership. They recognize that the higher up they go, the more of an obligation that they have to serve. It's not led with ego and pride in me and my. It's very much about we, our, and of course they, looking at the students being the heart of what we do. They create inclusive cultures, places where people actually want to be. We're also talking about stepping outside of our box, taking risks. And the only way to psychologically do that is if we feel safe, if we feel like we can. So future-ready leaders are not ruling by fear. You may make a short-time shift. You may fear people into slight change. But over the long haul, that's not going to sustain and ultimately create inclusive environments where people want to be. So I'm talking about that from the adult end, the cultures in our schools. How do we create environments from the classroom to our buildings to superintendents and the way we message? And also then from a peer-to-peer end as well, from adult to adult, creating environments where people can take risks, where they feel supportive, where they feel included, regardless of who they are and their background and their upbringing and those pieces. I would say they're also very innovative and forward thinking. Getting to work with superintendents all across the country, I kindly remind them in one of their struggles, they're one vote away, one board meeting away from looking for a new job. And so their balance as future ready leaders is how do I push far enough and hard enough for what my kids need and deserve, but also understanding I upset that apple cart in my community because I've changed so much or they don't understand what we're doing because we haven't communicated well. Well, guess what? That shift in leadership happens real, real quick. And it's not change for change sake. It's not hopping on that latest bandwagon because something is shiny and new. It's how do we make sure that we're creating equitable opportunities. And we talk about equity. We really speak at it in terms of access. March 20th of 2020, what happened? 
many districts started to say like, uh-oh, what are we going to do for the kids that are home that don't have the connectivity that's needed? And my loving pushback question is, why didn't we care about that as much on March 19th when 70% of our teachers pre-COVID were asking kids to do something digital outside of school? Because in many cases, it was a convenient thing. Like we would do it if we had it, but now it's a case where things like that are front and center, non-negotiables. And so when we talk about what are future-ready schools, there are those that prioritize equity for every opportunity. Connectivity is one piece to that. They also look to break down structural systems that have been in the past. Maybe it's getting into AP courses and what our demographics are in those courses. And how do we run through walls to break some of that down? The other places that I would say front and center, and I know there's a lot of pieces there that I'm talking that could be looked at as philosophical, but it's making sure that we put kids before adults. It's so easy in our world to say, well, we're just going to navigate to that contract and that's all we're going to do. And at the end of the day, they're working to make personal and authentic learning experiences, learning experiences that matter. They're breaking the mold of sit and get. I'm going to fill your head with knowledge. You're going to regurgitate it back. We're going to use an antiquated grading system to produce what we can through compliance. And they're shifting the system so that it's meaningful, so that it's equitable, and that they're giving opportunities as much as needed wherever possible. Tom, your passion comes right through this microphone, and we so appreciate in talking about future-ready schools that you note not only the importance of innovation or what's perceived as innovation in that future-ready sense, but the absolute integration with justice. And you also noted the important role of people, that ultimately it comes down to people and to leaders. And maybe not just that named obvious leader, but layers of leadership in these schools and in these districts. Take us back to that future-ready framework. What are the people in these schools, the leaders in these schools, what is it that they're working on? What are they coming together to create? And how are they making use of the future-ready framework? It's really looking at how do we make sure that the things that we're preaching right now are just as relevant 25 years from now in that work? Like, what are those things that are evergreen in terms of always are going to be vital at a time where there's constant change? You know, as we continue to pick up things around AI and changes in technology, it's easy to hop on, well, this is going to be the latest tool. I remember going back in my personal experience, my classroom, when I taught fourth grade 20 years ago, Palm Pilots. You remember those babies? And so I share that story often because I remember being told that Palm Pilots were going to change education. In retrospect, we were hopping on a bandwagon and when as the teacher, there I was doing certain things just because the Palm Pilots could, not because it was the best way to learn something. And I share that as a quick example of how easy it is in our world to hop onto that latest trend, look at that shiny object, call myself future ready because now we bought tool X and look at us and those are the tools of the future. It's recognizing today's technology is the worst technology our kids will ever use moving forward. And this isn't just about buying stuff. When we look at it from an evidence-based end, we did a lot of research. We worked with Dr. Linda Darling-Hammond, one of our former board members at the Alliance for Excellent Education, doing a lot of work with other research organizations to say, what are the big bucket areas of transformation that we have to shift to shift the system as a whole? But simultaneously, if we miss, it could all come crashing down. So to walk you through them really quickly, the outside of the Future Ready framework is collaborative leadership and inclusive culture. The gears, we use that analogy because when you think of gears in life, there's no gear that's just standalone all by itself. The purpose of a gear is to interact with others and it's recognizing in our schools, sometimes we focus on one thing and we're working to change one thing, but we don't think about the implications and say our community or, gee, what was the professional learning before we bought that that we really should have focused on? So it's taking these big bucket areas, show how they intersect and how if we change one, it's also going to impact the other. So the first gear is curriculum instruction and assessment. It's the heart and soul of what we do 
It's the teaching and learning side. It's how do we shift those practices from one size fits all to more personalized and experienced or student-centered, and what can that look like? Second, we look at personalized professional learning. You know, we don't call it professional development intentionally. I, I can say I've never met a teacher that's gotten up in the morning and they're like, I can't wait to go be developed today, right? Like I've never heard that. And there's multiple studies out there that I've seen that when you look at the phrase professional development, what do people think? They think hours-based accountability and sit and get. And what do we know that doesn't work? It's that, right? And so when we talk about personalized professional learning, how do we help district shift systems where some of the things that have been non-traditional in nature, they grow to appreciate and or value? Virtually every state has some sort of hours-based accountability system. Every five years, you have to do X amount of hours, which is really interesting because there's really no connection between hours and learning. You know, if we had a teacher in the system that did 500 hours of professional learning and nothing shifted in their classroom, would we celebrate it? And so when we take a look at personalized professional learning, it's how do we create systems where our teachers have more personalized experience, which increases things like voice and choice? How do we have leaders that model it? Well, if I'm a superintendent, I also need to look in the mirror and say, well, what about me? How am I learning professionally? Who's pushing my thinking? How am I networking with other soups to grow? And then how do I turn that around and share with my principals or my teachers how I'm learning and growing? So part of it's also being transparent in our own learning as well. Another one is budget and resources. If I could sum that up in one word, it would also be sustainability. When we look at all the ARP funding that's coming through for districts right now, one of my biggest fears, even though we've worked on that from the Alliance for Excellent Education, we helped with some of the language of that, is the funding crisis that's going to happen three years from now, that fiscal cliff. If we're just hiring people and that money goes down by the wayside three years from now, it's not coming back in. How do we avoid fiscal cliffs like that? And understanding that every state looks different and how funding structures are, it's a very very complicated topic, but we try to work to support through resources and helping them look at it from a sustainable vision financially there. Other pieces real quick, community partnerships. How do we engage our community? Traditionally, it's often been so one directional. It's kind of, here's our math night. Here's our handout. Here's what you have to know. As opposed to how do we make sure communities are truly part of the work that we're doing? And I'm not just talking families. Maybe it's our places of worship, our businesses, and lots of great examples of districts partnering with communities. Data and privacy, as things become more digital, this becomes more front and center. This really comes down to trust. So when we look at this gear, how do we make sure that we're keeping trust with our families in the information that we have? The other two would also be robust infrastructure. Obviously, that's been front and center when it comes to the digital divide, which we've been talking about for well over two decades, but also related to internet access at home and those kinds of things. And finally, the use of space and the use of time. What are our learning spaces? What does evidence show behind them? But also looking at how we use time differently. You know, time is kind of one of the one constants we have in education, but schools are also looking at it very differently. And it's where we can start to look at some of the mastery-based or competency-based. So the framework comes together as you look there because each of those areas is really vital. But as we go to change something in one area, we help look and step back and say, okay, well, how might that impact professional learning? How can we make sure that's sustainable? What do we need to connect with our community on to make sure they understand or that they support? What are the spaces or how does the time change? And really look at it holistically there as well. Tom, we're going to come back to that notion of rethinking space and time in a moment. But I just want to say, as a fellow former fourth grade teacher, you're really taking me back with some of the things you're talking <laughs> about here. You know, I was in the classroom 10 years ago. And at that point, we were just starting to talk about things like personalized learning, student-centered learning. And one of the things I noticed is when one person would come in to talk about personalized learning, we would define it one way. And in our next professional development, we would talk about it a different way. I'm wondering, given the fact that those terms have evolved over the past few years, how does Future Ready Schools think about personalized learning? How does learning become more student-centered? How do you sort of define those terms and how are you applying them in Future Ready Schools? 
So for us, first and foremost, you can't be personalized unless the person feels like they belong. Look at the root of the word. It's person. It's not computer. It's not technology. And I think a lot of times because of some things that have been out there, when people see the phrase personalized, I think what happens is many of them jump to technology. A device is going to do a majority of the work. It's interacting with a computer. And on one hand, yes, we can leverage technology as part of it. This is the sort of Netflix of learning type analogy you sometimes hear. Correct. To have a personalized experience, educators need to know their learners. So it's doing everything that they can to really get to know the strengths, the needs, the interests, the stories within the learner to be able to truly teach them. And I really believe it's a child's story that also determines the context in which his or her learning occurs. It's leveraging the interests, the passions of the strengths of our students how easy it is to fall into, here's our data team meeting, we're looking at all this data and here's everything that kids are missing. Of course, data is an important part of things, but it doesn't always tell the whole story. It's also valuing voice and choice. It's recognizing that the learners are the most important part of the experience. And so if we're not giving them voice and choice, how can we ultimately say we're preparing them for life? It's using space and time flexibly and recognizing that learning doesn't have to be within this 50 minute period. It's recognizing authentic experiences experiences outside of the school day. And we've seen a lot of that during COVID. We've got to know our learners first and foremost, and then leverage the different tools to really meet them where they are, but also really leverage their strengths, their interests, their passions. So school is something that they want to run to, not something that they want to run from. This is Greg Baer, along with Ryan Rydzeski. We're talking with Thomas C. Murray, Director of Innovation for Future Ready Schools. So Tom, Ryan and I are guessing that you have no shortage of stories. (laughs) So give us some real life examples, some actual school somewhere in America, maybe a leader in a particular school who's really wrestling with this future ready framework in a way that just inspires you. You gave us lots of examples of those gears in the framework. Maybe let's focus on the physical spaces, the environment that drives the behavior of the adults and the learners in those spaces. When we look at Future Ready in terms of the framework and ways it's being used, I'll start at the state level and I'll throw out states like Wisconsin, Nebraska, Utah, Rhode Island. When you look at their statewide plans and visions, it's all around the Future Ready framework because they understood if we're going to vision as a state, these big bucket areas that I just talked about really need to be at the core of the work. When I bring it down to the district level, I can think about districts like Middletown Public Schools in Connecticut, led by Doc Connor, or Valverde Schools in California, led by Dr. Michael McCormick. In Middletown, it's a very systemic plan and vision-related. Their plan for sustainability, their plan for innovation, their plan for equity. In Valverde, the way they've leveraged Future Ready is through a lot of the pathway work that they're doing. In the past five years, they've grown pathways, expanding it now to their middle schools, so that students can take a variety of different pathways to really dive into some of the world of work that they're interested in, and Future Ready has been at the bedrock of that. If we take a look at the use of space and the use of time in the framework, it really comes down to like, well, what does research and evidence show? And this is not about being pretty for Pinterest, to be really clear, because you see that all over social media. It goes to really three main notions. One's around individualization. How does the individual believe that they're part of that space? That's taking a look at gender. It can be taking a look at race. You know, if I'm a high school and I walk into U.S. history and every image of success around U.S. history class is a white dead guy, how do our students of color internalize what success looks like in our country? And have we had some issues with that in our country? Yeah, you better believe it. It's also looking at the gender end, like women's rights. Have we had some issues for our females? Absolutely. And so we've got to be really conscious of the impact of space in that regard. If males, females, they're walking into our classroom, we need to make sure it's an environment that they're not like, I don't belong here because that really undermines some of the learning side. 
The two other things that come up in research when we talk about learning spaces, one is around this idea around naturalness. And so that really comes to how the brain responds to things that are more like nature. And a lot of times we'll take people outside, we'll open up the windows, we'll bring plants in, things like air quality, temperature, sound, and how they can all impact learning. Another one in that regard around naturalness, what do we do on our windows in our classrooms often? We put lots of stuff on them. But if you look at any of the research behind the impact of daylight in the brain, what does it really say? Get your blinds up, get as much natural light in as you can, because there's a lot of connections to natural light and mood and mood's connection to learning. And the last one is around this idea of overstimulation. You know, I can picture this classroom that I was in. It was a great teacher, by the way, when I was a principal and I'd walk in and, you know, I'm bobbing and weaving around all the different poof balls that are hanging from the ceiling and there's every square inch of space has stuff on it. And it's understanding that some people, they're totally fine in that space. Some people don't even recognize it because their brain's wired in a similar way. But other people, when we look at it, it's too much, it's overstimulating and it loses focus. And so how do we make sure that there are environments that are not overstimulating in nature, some evidence says up to 40 or 50% of the space should be kind of blank or not have stuff on it so that we're not taking away. Bottom line, if it's not in the classroom for learning at the end of the day, why is it there? Tom, you've written or co-written lots of books about learning and innovation. And most recently, you wrote Personal and Authentic, Designing Learning Experiences That Impact a Lifetime. Those words, personal and authentic, take us back to what you've touched on a couple of times now, which is the importance of people and relationships. And I'm wondering if you can tell us more about that. What is the role of human connection in designing those learning experiences that can impact a student now, 10 years from now, and 20 years down the line? I wrote the book because I wanted to offer hope. The very first words of personal and authentic are the work is hard, but our kids are worth it. I wrote that just before the pandemic. And what I can tell you, if I would write it post-pandemic, I would alter it to the work is ridiculously hard, (laughs) but our kids are worth it, you know? And so for me, it was bringing back that human touch. In a lot of systems, in a lot of places, we became so data-focused that we lost the person side of things. And again, data is important, but it doesn't tell the whole story. One of my main themes in Personal and Authentic, I use my own daughter and part of her medical journey as an example. When I get to keynote and open up a lot of different conferences, the example, the way I tell it is I'll put data on a screen. In the past 14 months, this female student's been absent 35 times. In the past 14 months, she's been tardy 20 times. What are some judgments we might make? And I've asked that question to thousands of educators and the same responses come up. The kid's lazy. The parents don't care. They're disconnected, academically low, and on and on. And every reason we would spit out, they'll say, well, let me tell you part of the story. That's my daughter. And the room goes silent. And I start to relive what it was like when she was 10 months old and running to that emergency room, screaming for an EpiPen because we had no idea the food allergies my daughter had. We almost lost her. Doctors ultimately gave her about 30 minutes from consuming a seed of sesame, like literally one seed, what it could do to her body. And I share part of her story. And then I share the, what if I told you in every one of those 35 absences, she was two hours from our home undergoing food allergy therapy as the first child in the Northeast to do it for sesame. And I kind of relive those pieces because it's something that's on her heart every single day when she shows up for school. She thinks about her food allergies, why she's different, what that looks like. We have to lead with that empathy lens to recognize the person teaching across the hall, the person that's leading our building, the student that's walking into the classroom, or the parent that we're just about to call have stories on their heart that we can't see and that many times we'll never know. My daughter's teacher, just the first week of school, the first assignment that they did was, if you really knew me, you would know, 
and they had to write multiple paragraph essay in middle school for it, but it gave them an opportunity to share part of their story. I believe a child's story helps define the context in which his or her learning occurs, whether that's the cultures that we have, whether that's on the teaching and learning side and recognizing the stories within, or really bringing it back to relationships. And this work, first and foremost, as educators being about loving and caring about kids and doing whatever we can to break down barriers to open up walls for them. Tom, one of our hopes as we think about the legacy of this pandemic period is that we build upon the empathy that maybe we've gained as we've had glimpses into a classroom as parents or as teachers, the glimpses into homes that we've seen and we understand those stories in different ways and think about how those stories can help us genuinely personalize learning in the human ways that you've described. Thank you for sharing your own story. Absolutely. So, Tom, where can people find out more about all of the work that you're doing? So first and foremost, I'd encourage you to check out futureready.org. It's part of the Alliance for Excellent Education, which you can find at all4ed.org. It's a numerical four. I encourage you to check those out. And personally, you can check out thomascmurray.com, where you can connect at Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, those kinds of things there as well. And Tom, we're not going to let you go just yet. One more question. What's one thing that parents and educators can do today to make tomorrow a more promising place for every learner? You know, it reminds me of a question that I often ask educators, you know, what can you do on day one or what can you do today that makes kids run back tomorrow? And so I would say it's sit down, have a one-on-one conversation with that child that's not loaded, that does not have an agenda, that's not about grades. Just talk to them to get to know what is on their heart so you can look at it in a new light and look at it a little bit differently to get to know them that much better. And when we know them that much better, we can teach them that much better. Remaking Tomorrow is powered by Remake Learning, a Pittsburgh-based network of people and organizations that ignite engaging, relevant, and equitable learning practices in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change. Learn more at remakelearning.org tomorrow.